0: Welcome to the Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today is episode 81, Lies of the Magpie, chapters 34 and 35. Hi, friends. Welcome. So glad you're here today. I hope you're having a great summer and that everything is going well for you. Good news and bad news today. The good news is that the audio version of Lies of the Magpie is coming close to completion and hopefully will be available on audio by the end of the month. Happy August, by the way, although does it really matter if it's August or May or July or April? Everything is just kind of blurring together right now. But hopefully by the end of August, you will be able to listen to the full, complete audio version of Lies of the Magpie from prologue to epilogue. The bad news is because it's August, we're almost to the end of this summer podcast series and almost to the end of sharing these free chapters. So we're in our last couple of weeks and today is chapter 34 and 35 out of 48. It goes to chapter 48 and then the epilogue. So a little refresher from last week, chapter 33 left off. I'd finally gotten to a doctor that wasn't an OBGYN, found out that I had Epstein bar, that my thyroid was off. The doctor prescribed an antiviral medication, which I took without hesitation, although I was continuing to be extremely resistant to taking antidepressant medication. And deciding to take the antiviral medication pretty much seals the decision for me that I will stop nursing Jack because the antivirals are pretty new on the market and haven't proven safe for breastfeeding. So I breastfeed Jack for the last time, ball all the way through it, Then he's going to be weaned from that point on, which really wasn't a process at all, because I wasn't making enough milk to nourish him. I was just clinging to nursing. And when I gave him the first bottle of formula, he looked so happy to have a full belly. So weaning him wasn't an issue. He was happy to get a bottle that actually really had milk in it. Then chapter 34 begins... Just this waiting game. I can't do anything but wait for six weeks to take another thyroid test and hope that the antiviral medication will help me get feeling better. We move Jack out of our bedroom so that we can all sleep through the night. And that is the goal for everyone to start getting sleep. And everyone in the family starts sleeping really well through the night, including the baby, except me. And I I'm failing at sleep and chapter 34 takes you through the frustration of I struggle to fall asleep. When I finally begin to fall asleep, something jerks me awake. It's like I hear a noise or something startles me and I just jerk wide awake and then I'm awake for hours and can't get back to sleep. So it's extremely frustrating. My body is exhausted, but I cannot sleep And for any of you out there listening, if you are having sleep issues right now, oh my goodness, you have my heart. Nothing in your life feels right if your sleep is not working. Your brain doesn't work. Your emotions don't work. It's hard to function. We need sleep. We need our eight hours of sleep. We're human, and there's nothing more healing or restorative for us than eight hours of good, uninterrupted sleep. So as the weeks pass, I'm not sleeping, I'm not getting any better, I don't feel any better from the antiviral medication, and something has to change. And in chapter 35, in one of my favorite lines from the entire book, my dad tells me that I should go see one of those homeophobic doctors, and he means a homeopathic doctor. And then some girls that I know from church also tell me about this homeopathic doctor in our area. That they see. And so everything is kind of pointing me to go try this doctor. So, chapter 35 is my introduction to naturopathic or homeopathic medicine, which I've never done before. And so, chapter 35 tells you the interesting things that happen when I see the homeopathic doctor for the first time. So, with that little bit of background, I present for you the audio readings of Lies of the Magpie, chapters 34 and 35. Chapter 34. Waiting Game Dr. Thorpe's Get Well Plan is more like a six-week round of The Waiting Game. Take the antivirals, wait for the virus to pass, come back in six weeks for a follow-up thyroid blood test. Before the appointment, I'd convinced myself that Dr. Thorpe would give me news along the lines of You've got a parasitic, energy-zapping tumor wrapped around your thyroid, which explains why you can't move or take a full breath. One little outpatient surgery and you will be good as new. What I had expected was a scenario similar to my LASIK eye surgery two years ago. On that day, I walked into the doctor's office with vision so blurry I could barely decipher the large E on top of the eye charts. One hour later, driving home from the procedure, minuscule letters on road signs a mile away were crystal clear. Laya and I had persuaded ourselves that the one and only possible outcome of the appointment would be Dr. Thorpe sending me for surgery. The surgery would be serious enough to warrant get-well cards and warm casseroles delivered from church ladies, but not too risky. Most importantly, during the surgery, I would be unconscious while someone other than myself worked to remove the problem, and I would wake up all better. But that isn't what happened. I'm not even close to being all better. Getting the kids ready in the morning feels like trying to push the bus to school by myself. Our March deadline is looming, and menial tasks take me hours to complete. Aaron speeds past me in the hall as I move, slow as a tortoise treading through a river of thick tar. He prepares a dinner, feeds the kids, and finishes the dishes before I can open the fridge and take out the milk. How will I get through the next six weeks? Some days I feel so terrible that I'm convinced I will die. But even worse than the thought of death is the prospect that I won't die, but won't get better either, and will have to clunk through the rest of my life like a zombie on crutches, which is no life at all. The monster-sized antiviral capsules remind me of the pills my dad forced down a calf's throat to treat it for scours. Each night before bed, I gulp one of those massive pills and hope that come sunrise, my eyes will open and I'll be able to take a full breath and say, wow, I feel better. During the day, my body wears a cloak of fatigue, but the moment my body reposes for the night, I come wide awake. I cannot fall asleep. If there is one area in which I have excelled in my life, It is being an accomplished sleeper. Up until now, I could fall asleep anywhere. In the car, on my school desk, sitting upright in the pew at church, on the park bench watching my kids swing. Given three minutes of stillness, I could breeze through REM and achieve full nirvana-like sleep. There are plenty of skills I lack. Running, for example. I will never be found breaking the ribbon at the end of a race. But if sleeping were an Olympic event... You could pad your bank account betting on me to win consecutive gold medals. Until now. Now, I am failing at sleep. This is an entirely new experience for me. Lying in bed, my head itches, so I get up and brush my hair. Back between the sheets, my pillow needs re-fluffing. Lying on the right side of my body isn't comfortable, but neither is flipping to the left. An army of red ants marches up the insides of my legs. My nerves are on fire. In the toss and turn, the covers are pulled off Aaron, who sits up irritated. What are you doing? I can't fall asleep. Why? If I knew why, I would fix it. Holding as still as possible so Aaron can sleep, I count seconds, telling myself I must reach 300 before switching positions but my skin becomes a scratchy wool blanket. Kicking back the covers and switching on the bright bathroom light, I dig through the under-sink cabinet, searching for hydrocortisone or lotion with anti-itch remedy. Rubbing lotion into my dry skin drives the ants away until the moment my feet settle into the bottom of the sheets, then the ants are back, those pesky, determined little skin crawlers. The pillow under my face barely muffles my frustrated screams. What is wrong? Aaron's patience with me has worn paper thin. I don't know what's wrong. My body is run down, but instead of being sleepy, my eyes, brain, and circuits are on high alert. I can't stand my bedroom any longer. With a pillow tucked under my arm and a spare blanket from the linen closet in the hall, I set up night watch on the family room couch. For ten nights, I put on pajamas, swallow a massive antiviral pill, crawl into bed, and hope to wake up feeling better. What I crave more than anything is the energy and renewal that comes from restorative sleep. For 10 mornings, I find myself greeting sunrise through the family room window, not refreshed, not rejuvenated, only resentful. Waking up on yet another morning to find himself alone in bed, Aaron politely suggests that this trouble sleeping is all in my head, and perhaps I should break the habit of moving to the couch in the night. Mentally, I chain my body to the mattress. My eyes close. The edges of dreams appear to escort my consciousness into sleep. Ah, a deep exhale. The first frames of dream are loudly interrupted, a movie reel broken and flapping, the screen white with choppy countdown numbers. I'm bolt upright. What woke me? My ears perk listening for the sound. Something fell off a kitchen shelf? One of the kids rolled out of bed? An alarm? A police siren? All is silent. The house and yard are peaceful. Aaron rolls over. What is it? Did you hear something? No. He nestles back into his pillow. I didn't hear anything. Without effort, Aaron returns to a soothing pattern of deep, relaxed breathing. Lying next to his dozing body, I am anything but restful. My pulse races as if I am trying to outrun a bear. I try to return to my dream, but my body and mind, though flattened with fatigue, are wide awake. The clock reads 12.43 a.m. No getting out of bed, I tell myself. Like a prisoner paces the boundaries of the jail cell, I toss and turn, pushing against the limited confines of my bed. I roll as far away from Aaron as I can get, but that doesn't help, so I roll over and entwine myself around him, hoping his sleepiness will spread to me. Don't look at the clock. Scooting back to the middle of my space, I cross my legs, uncross my legs, change the pillow between my knees, curl into a tight ball, stretch out long and straight, lie on my back, lie on my stomach. Oops, I looked at the clock. 2.34 a.m., Two hours and no sleep. My anger flares. I throw off the covers and launch my pillow against the wall, letting out a tribal yell. Aaron opens his eyes to see me pulling my hair as if trying to remove my scalp. What is wrong? He asks, propping up on one elbow. I cannot sleep! My bottled emotions well up and pop their cork like bitter champagne. I have not fallen asleep since that first time when something jerked me awake. You're kidding. Why? I don't know why! There is an overwhelming urge to leap out of bed and pound the walls. Something in me desperately needs to throw a couch. I want to sleep. I am exhausted, but my body will not fall asleep. Aaron looks incredulous. I hide my head. How does he do it? He makes sleeping look so easy. Thus I spend my night squashed between fatigue and insomnia, the unlikeliest of bedfellows. What's more, sometime in the night a soot-covered, burly blacksmith comes into the room and sets up his cumbersome anvil on my chest. He goes to work pounding and bending his iron, my lungs and ribs crush under his labor. In the wee morning hours, insomnia grows disenchanted by the noise and exits the room, leaving fatigue and me huddled together under the weight of the blacksmith's anvil. In the midst of all this non-sleeping, my house becomes Hotel Arizona. Since moving to Surprise seven years ago, our house has been a spring break retreat for friends, cousins, and cousins of our friends' cousins, From March through April, anyone seeking reprieve from the bitter clutches of the northern winter calls to reserve a room at the Warner Bed and Breakfast. In the past, I have loved these visitors who entertain my children and break up the monotony of day-to-day housekeeping. But this year, I lack the strength to hold up the two corners of my mouth, let alone carry on congenial conversation. And how will I explain to my guests about the black circles under my eyes? When my cousin's family comes to stay, she brings a health drink which is supposed to cure everything from toe fungus to a bad personality. Desperate enough to try anything, I take a cautious sip, barely stopping myself from gagging. Does it taste more like what goes into a horse's mouth or what comes out its other end? Sorry, it doesn't taste good, she says in sympathy, but it works really well. The email I send to one of my favorite visitors takes me an hour to write. I want to see her. We need her humor and sense of pragmatism, not to mention the kids adore her. But she's recently been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and I'm a walking petri dish. Dear Janice, I'm thinking that your compromised immune system and the questionable contagiousness of my possible virus may not be a good combination. Maybe you should keep your distance from me this year. Malia. The last visitors who come to town are my parents. After a morning of throwing breadcrumbs to ducks at the neighborhood park, we take a scenic tour of every house with a for-sale sign. At each stop, my dad climbs out of the car to retrieve an info sheet, which he adds to the rolled stack of flyers ripping the seams of his shirt pocket. Honey, he says to my mother, we ought to buy a home and move down here. I'm getting too old to shovel snow. Our moderate March weather casts a spell on people, hypnotizing them into believing they must move here. But come July, Hotel Arizona is more hell than heaven. While we drive, I paraphrase what the doctor said at my two appointments. Mom wonders if I've called for Paul's opinion, which I have. So basically, nobody knows what is wrong with me, or nothing is wrong with me, and it's all in my head. My dad signals me to stop the car. In talking about my confusing diagnosis, I missed a house for sale. Dad stoops his tall frame back into the minivan, stuffing yet another trifold in his pocket, along with the case for his sunglasses. That pocket has exceeded its holding capacity. Resuming the conversation without missing a beat, my dad tells me about a young mother from his church congregation, where he serves as the bishop who got really sick last year, and no one could find out what was wrong with her. We all thought she was on her deathbed. Then she found this one doctor, and now she runs around with so much energy you'd never know she was sick. What doctor did she go to? I ask. My dad thinks hard. She went to see one of those homo, what do you call them, homeo, honey? He asks my mom for help, but she has no idea what he's talking about. Homeophobic, my dad spouts out. That's it. She went to one of those homeophobic doctors and now she is 100% better. Though my health status is confusing, I'm confident homeophobia is not my problem. Still, the thought of my traditional father suggesting natural medicine raises the corners of my mouth a few degrees. Growing up, my parents viewed chiropractors and homeopaths with the same suspicion as fortune tellers and gold diggers. You ought to go see one of those homeophobic doctors, my dad tells me again. Then again, dad is always bringing up things people ought to do. Honey, we ought to move down here. Or, that's a nifty gadget you're using to slice meat. Honey, you ought to get one of those. That evening, after my parents leave for Anissa's house, I drop into a church women's gathering. I didn't feel up to going, but mom had said, You should go. Those meetings are always so good. I ought to stay and go with you, but we told Denise we'd come for dinner. When the meeting ends, some of the ladies gather to talk. They end up circled around me, not because I am the life of the party, but because I couldn't muster the strength to move. When Laura says, Malia, you look good tonight. This is what comes out of my mouth, and I'm not proud about it. There's a reason they put makeup on dead people. Lately, I am fun to be around in the way a barrel of decaying monkeys is fun. In response to my snarky comment, these ladies have every right to fold their metal chairs and leave me to my self-pity. Instead, they gather closer. What's up, Malia? What's going on? Deanne asks. Surprising myself, I open up about the diagnosis or non-diagnosis. I'm getting worse, and I don't know how to get better. Hannah says, Go see Dr. Erdman, Crystal pipes in. Yes, go see Dr. Erdman. What does he do? I ask. He's a homeopathic doctor. Yeah, but what does he do? I have no experience with homeopathic doctors. Just go see him and find out what he thinks, Hannah says. That's interesting. My dad said the same thing to me this morning. I look around, realizing we are the last people in the meeting room. These women will be late getting home to babies and husbands. They have stayed to rally around me. Chapter 35 Homeophobic Around 1985, give or take a few years, Dr. Anderson opened the first chiropractic clinic in my hometown. When Mother spied someone we knew opening his office door, she would say, Now why are they going in there? as if the person were walking into a house of ill repute. People entering the state liquor store didn't get the same height of my mother's eyebrows as people visiting the chiropractor. And now, I have an appointment with one. Flying to Tanzania and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to speak to a guru might feel less absurd. For three days, I've tried to visualize the appointment, and for some reason, these imaginations always show Dr. Erdman as a burly, bearded man who lives in a trailer in the desert and eats roasted lizards and cactus juice. Also, he has three albino snakes. On my way to the appointment, I wonder if this will be a traditional question-and-answer type exam, or will there be bloodletting leeches? The address takes me to a newly built office complex. The lettering on the clear glass door reads, Dr. Robert Erdman, D.C. On the waiting room table is a stack of magazines, the typical run-of-the-mill reading selections, none of which promote a Himalayan mud diet. A receptionist hands me a clipboard. Welcome, I'm Julia. Since this is your first visit, please fill out these forms. Pulling a flower pen from the jar of flat marbles, I take a seat in the far corner and speak a silent, in-my-head kind of prayer. Please let me know if this doctor can help me. I need divine enlightenment to sort out if this homeopathic mumbo-jumbo merits an investment of my time and money, or if the whole setup is a shenanigan my brother Paul likes to call a lot of hocus-pocus. A warmth spreads in my chest. It feels right to be here. The top forms are the standard insurance information and privacy disclosures but the next form is different. Rather than mindlessly checking boxes about family history of diabetes and arthritis, these questions probe deeper. List your symptoms in order of what is most disruptive to your life. Sleep. I feel so weary and worn down, but I can't sleep. It's oddly touching that someone wants to understand how the ailments that bring me in today are impeding my day-to-day quality of life. Writing out, I can't sleep, in real letters, on tangible paper, is empowering. Without even seeing Dr. Erdman, my body feels buoyed up, as if I'm Atlas, struggling to hold the weight of my world, and someone put a support beam under my arm. This is the right doctor for me. The flower pen moves across the page and the rest of my symptoms appear written evidence to issues i've worried were all in my head lightheaded i'm scared to drive long distances i feel like i don't exist like there is no substance to me muddy head forgetfulness can't make decisions or solve problems it's hard to feel intuition or inspiration like before congestion cough lots of sinus drainage and chest muck aches Feels like the worst body aches from the flu every day. Slow. I move slowly and don't get things done like I used to. Hormones. Anxiousness and rage. I feel ready to explode even when I'm not mad at anything, but I don't feel other emotions like happy or sad. Weakness. No strength. I have nothing to offer. I don't feel any weight on my feet. No foundation worthless. Wellness. No sense of wellness. I can feel that something is wrong with me, but I can't tell what it is. Only very last do I write. Tingling and numbness in my arms and legs. The tingling is what I emphasized to Bart Hansen. Not that it bothers me the most, because it doesn't, but because it seemed the most likely to merit medical concern. The inability to sleep, the muddy head, and the body aches didn't seem like something worth seeing a doctor about, yet they are the very things that most disrupt my daily ability to function. A nurse opens the door and calls my name. I follow her through the door, taking the first step of a thousand-mile journey. Dr. Erdman breezes into the room with giant strides on short legs. He looks like a five-foot-six weightlifter and wears, of all the bizarre things, Dockers and a polo shirt. Hey, how you doing? He grins with so much enthusiasm, I think maybe he ended up with my energy and I only needed to come here today to reclaim it. Without looking at my paperwork, he proceeds to do what I later learn is called muscle testing. He taps on different places around my back and belly, asking questions and pushing on my outstretched arm. Sometimes my arm stays firm, and sometimes my arm drops like a lever. Next, he pulls out a silver briefcase and sets it on his lap. Dr. Erdman snaps the latches, which make a double click-click. With a you're-gonna-love-this smile, he raises the lid. Part of me expects him to lift out a forty-four Remington Magnum with a 3-inch silencer. Yes, the environment feels that far from my normal, and yet I don't feel uncomfortable. Okay, maybe I feel a little uncomfortable. The suitcase, though cushioned with belt, is not housing a pistol, but vials of glass specimen jars holding samples of what look like pieces of lint, dirt, some metal shavings, colored solutions, and pills. He holds various vials up to different parts of my body and does the same arm pushing. He talks so fast I can't follow everything he says. Suddenly, the vials are all returned to their foam resting spots. The suitcase is snapped shut and stashed under the counter. Take a seat. Dr. Erdman gestures for me to sit on the examination table. You have a virus in your spleen. Your spleen is quite swollen. One of the tests Dr. Thorpe had ordered was an ultrasound of my spleen. I didn't mention spleen anywhere on my paperwork. Weird. Was he a chiropractor or a fortune teller? Dr. Erdman continues. You also have an infection, but what puzzles me the most is... He presses into my lower back. Have you done something to burn out your adrenal glands? Have I what? Burned out your adrenal glands. You've heard about adrenaline rushes? Sure, I've heard miraculous stories about the mother who lifts a car off her child or the man who outruns a flash flood. Feats of extreme strength or speed coming from a boost of adrenaline. The fight-or-flight response is designed to be a quick, short-term reaction to survive an extreme circumstance. After the emergency, the body must rest in order to rebuild and restore its adrenal function. Dr. Erdman crosses his arms and tisk tisks like a school principal, trying to decide what to do with a naughty student. Your adrenal glands are torched, like you've been burning through adrenaline over an extended period of time. Um... Last fall, I helped clean out my parents' house. There were a lot of heavy boxes, 50-pound buckets of wheat. I moved furniture like beds and dressers. Pictures flashed through my mind, bracing a heavy wooden chest of drawers with my nephew balancing the other end while we struggled to heft it up the concrete stairs out of the basement. After two days of emptying the house, I returned straight to teaching early morning seminary. Then I was pregnant, and the magazine, the drive to Tucson, the bath, the lights, the commotion of Jack's frantic birth, his blessing. The images flash by in microseconds, but I seem to relive each and every event, including my midnight visit with Amanda, the visit to urgent care, my final piano recital, traveling for Christmas, hosting my family for New Year's, the Chamber of Commerce presentation. I might have come back in two days. He hands me a paper and leaves the room. At the front desk, Julia takes my paper and gathers bottles of supplements off a shelf. The appointment is $40, and the supplements add up to—she types numbers into a calculator—$95. Dr. Erdman had spent an hour with me and actually examined my body. Unlike Dr. Thorpe, who had sat at a distance and asked questions— Dr. Erdman had probed, adjusted, snapped things back into place, giving the impression he was cleaning house, clearing clutter, and putting things back in order. The whole appointment, including supplements, totaled $135, nearly the same cost as one 15 minute office visit to Dr. Thorpe. My insurance doesn't cover naturopathy or homeophobia, or whatever you want to call what Dr. Erdman does. So at the front desk, I pay for the appointment with $150 in cash I got from returning gifts to the store. Julia accepts the bills. Would you like credit or change? Her question strikes me in a new way. I look up, tilting my head, feeling a subtle click. I want change. Dr. Erdman wants to see you again Thursday. How about 12.15? Fine, I answer, still stunned. On the walk out to my car, the cells in my body seem to raise their hands in a unanimous vote. Yes, this is what we need. Please bring us back. At home, Aaron fixes lunch while I rattle on about the arm pushing, the silver briefcase full of mystery vials, the torched adrenals. Wow, that is weird. How do people believe in that stuff? He laughs. I don't laugh with him. He notices my sober expression. You were joking, right? Oh, you're not joking? You're serious about this? I wish you could have been there in person. What he said made sense. It gave me a lot more answers than Dr. Thorpe. Retelling it makes it sound like voodoo magic. You sound like you're going back. I have another appointment on Thursday. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to these sample audio selections from Lies of the Magpie. If you just can't wait to hear how the rest of the book finishes, you can go to Amazon right now and purchase it in paperback or Kindle. And if you have finished reading and haven't yet left a review on Amazon or Goodreads, why not? Will you do that please? Will you take a minute and go to Amazon or to Goodreads or to both and leave a review, especially this will help bookstores and libraries know that this is a legitimate book with an audience and that it would be worthwhile for them to stock it on their shelves. As always, be healthy and safe, and I will meet you back here next week for another great episode of The Power Podcast. Bye-bye.